Welcome back, listeners, to an incredibly special Whisper in the Wings. Uh, I'm really, really pumped about this uh, episode and this interview. We have a really special guest. Uh, with us today is Rachel Langton, who is the director of the currently running show, East Side Stories Actually. Um, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's so amazing to have you. I met you um, through mutual friend Taisha at the Classic Stage Company Gala uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, you were wonderful to talk to in a sea of people that I was like, I know absolutely no one. And I feel like that common person that just got invited to like the glitziest party in town. I felt like Cinderella. <laughs> And yes. <laughs> uh, you were just an absolute joy to talk with. And when you mentioned your show, I was like, I have to get her on here. I want to know more. Because this, the show you were telling us about, I mean, it sounds fantastic. I cannot wait to see it this week. Um, so why don't we, I mean, let's just jump into it. Tell us a bit about your show. Great. Yeah. Um, so it's called East Side Stories, actually. Um, it is part of this annual festival that happens at Metropolitan Playhouse called East Village Chronicles. Um, this is their 17th year doing it. And it is five short plays all about uh, the East Village. And um, I'm directing all five of them and they all kind of come together with one ensemble to give glimpses into the life and history and future of the East Village. That is amazing. And now I, I was looking to buy my tickets. I guess one ticket covers all five because it's all one complete show. Yes. Five separate. One yeah. Amazing. It's always confusing because a lot of um, festivals have different um, artistic teams for each show. And this is really unique because it's actually one artistic team for all five shows. Um, it's really more of a cohesive evening because of that. Um, there's five different playwrights, but we've all worked together to kind of weave in all the stories. I broke up one of the plays into two um, two bits. We have an epilogue that features like everyone. So it really is more of a cohesive evening rather than a play festival with five separate plays that are completely different. These are all very, uh, very tied together. That's awesome. That's just fantastic. So... How did you come upon this show, like come across it? Yeah, so I've been working with Metropolitan Playhouse for about four years now. Um, before the pandemic, I actually came on as a stage manager for East Village Chronicles, uh, their, I guess that was math, their 15th version. <laughs> um, and that's where I really learned about the project um, and got to experience this great theater that um, has a real community feel in the middle of New York, which I find very rare. I find often when you're doing New York theater, it's very much about the professional Broadway getting, getting your work to the next level. And at Metropolitan, it felt like we're doing pieces that are about the community that we are in that are by the community and for the community. So it really felt like we had this group of artists coming in, um, talking about their lives, and then our audiences were engaging with that. We'd have talkbacks where, um, you know, the audience would be talking about like the building that was featured in the show that they live in. So <laughs> there's like really uh, cool themes that come out of this festival. 
And then when the pandemic hit, um, I worked with the artistic director at Metropolitan, Alex, as he converted um, his programming to virtual. Um, I really like geeking out about Zoom theater. There's some like niche thing there that was really fun to kind of tap into. Um, and Alex and I worked together to figure out like, how do you run QLab through Zoom? Or how do we go from using Zoom to using OBS and using other streaming platforms to try and convert this medium that we are so used to having live? How do we recreate that live experience over the screen? Which I think that is still something that is forming and happening. Um, so I started off kind of stage managing and production managing for those Zoom readings. And um, then Alex, who knew that I was more of a director, was like, oh, well, do you want to do you want to direct one of these shows? And I was like, absolutely, I would I would love to. So I started directing some of the virtual productions, including um, some of the East Village Chronicles from 2020 and 2021. Um, and then as the pandemic started to lift, uh, I got coffee with Alex and got to see him again in person. And uh, we were talking about East Village Chronicles and he asked if I would direct the in-person version. Um, and I was absolutely thrilled to do that. So um, then I came on as a director there and, uh, and now we're here. So it's really, it's been a growing process. Um, it's definitely one of those stories where like, you know, once you get a good relationship with the theater and um, you find that relationship and you can build it to go farther and farther, um, it, it really goes places. I mean, that's amazing. Going back to East Side Story, actually, um, or East Side Stories, actually, sorry. Uh, what was it like developing the show? Um, it was so much fun to, cause, so we started off with just submissions every year. Metropolitan Playhouse asks for submissions for this, uh, for this festival. Um, and I actually wasn't involved in the first few rounds of review for that. Um, I came on when they were at the final stage. So I had about 15 plays that were vetted by a bunch of different readers um, and I read through them and just started to kind of think of what plays were speaking to me, um, what themes were coming out and how we could kind of curate an evening out of these different stories. Um, and as I was reading the plays, I started thinking a lot about authenticity, which is something that is, I think, a huge theme in the East Village uh, and in the arts world about how can you be your authentic self, especially in moments of change. And um, I also just thought that was something that was really speaking to me in this moment where theater and art is still trying to reckon where we are and where we wanna be. Um, and I found a lot of plays that talk about the theory of being progressive and being yourself and or pushing for social justice versus the actuality and the conflicts were happening between the theorized version and the actual version. And that's kind of where the idea of East Side Stories actually came. 
um, where a night about authenticity, about what does it mean to push for your values? Um, what is selling out versus getting owning your building? That's like one of our uh, one of the main themes of one of the shows is all about uh, a family who's living in a co-op that um, in the 80s was basically abandoned and a group of people were living there basically as squatters, but they fixed up the building and they made it into a home and really helped get the neighborhood back on its feet when other people abandoned it. And then the government is stepping in and saying, well, you don't own this building. Um, and which was a whole uh, thing that was happening from the eighties to the early two thousands. And it's all about this uh, company you have, or organization that basically worked with the government to buy the buildings back from the government so that they could give the buildings to the rightful owners, the people who were living there. But it involves a little bit of selling out because you have to admit that the building that you have been fighting for and have been kind of breaking the rules does not belong to you in a legal sense. And you need to kind of buy it back from this company, albeit for cheap. Um, and you have to start to obey some of the housing laws. Like there's just, there's a whole other thing, but what happened at the end of that movement is all these people who started off as like squatters, um, and people who did not have actual housing became homeowners. And now we're owning these buildings that are in a rapidly gentrified neighborhood that cost a lot of money. So, which also then, like, what does that mean to now be a homeowner in a neighborhood where, you know, rent is just through the roof? Um, there, there's something strange about being on the front grounds of social justice, but you now own a building in a gentrified neighborhood. Um, so there's like, there's a lot of, of themes of transition and how, how do we transition from this uh, one period to another period while looking out for everyone's best interests and staying true to what your morals are, um, which with the history of East Village, I think is just really interesting to think about and really relevant for, uh, I think, conversations that we're having today. You literally hit the word that I was like buzzing in my head the entire time as you were describing it, which I was like, gentrification gentrification like mm-hmm. i you know i'm a child of the 80s and, and 90s and 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 you know when new york was described as the big bad city i'm thinking of like the bronx and that of the 80s and 90s that was just burning and the lower east side you know the the, the yeah. drugs and squatters and that but now you go to either of those places and you're like um hang on harlem and all that not exactly anything like it was 20, 30 years ago. You know, I go to the East Village all the time now for shows and I'm like, this is a hip new place. Everyone's coming here. And I have thought about that where I'm like, I remember where this was like the artist's den. Yeah. Where all the artists live. But in reading like all these books recently to get my tour guide license, I was like, where do the artists go when they get out priced? Where's going to be the next big artist neighborhood? So I love that you literally said the magic word of gentrification. (laughs) You know, it's a good thing, but it's also a very bad thing. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like, well, especially for that piece, that's cooperation. 
um, that, oh, sorry, cooperative. That's what it's called. Um, cause there's the double meaning. Um, you know, the characters describe what it was like to live in these houses that did not have electricity or real plumbing. Cause what they actually did in the like sixties through the eighties, as these neighborhoods were becoming more and more expensive and the rich people were actually leaving the city, they stopped providing, um, your like social services there. So like they would just shut down fire departments or just, uh, when, a building owner would realize like, oh, you're not actually making your money off of the rent. They would just stop paying, like stop paying their electric bill um, so that the whole building just wouldn't have electricity or wouldn't keep up the maintenance for the water. So, which leads to some actual housing problems. And like, there is a lot of safety issues in Um, communities that don't have any infrastructure and the fact that these people built an infrastructure and then were able to keep these houses and still have a place in this neighborhood which is completely changing and I I think it's quite remarkable Um, but it does have the question because it's also interesting talking to some of these playwrights who lived through this and Mm -hmm. these are their stories and how they feel about living in a neighborhood that is gentrified and and up and coming now yeah um it's really really interesting uh to just see the the double the double sides of it yeah there's a there's a great book right behind me right there called new york new york new york and it starts covers new york starting in the 70s when like this huge recession hits for new york basically almost goes bankrupt and it follows it all the mm. way through 2000 where it recovers. And it just talks about how, like you mentioned, fire departments not were being shut down and there was no one to ensure, there, just, there was just not enough people to ensure that housing was okay in that. And that's why yeah. the situations arose like they did. But when all of a sudden, I mean, New York is the toughest city in the world. It's got the best people in the world. You know, we do have the best, I'll say like city services when it's time for it, but mm-hmm like ultimately New Yorkers take care of New Yorkers. That's one of the best things I've always seen. And so in hearing this, it sounds like these people just took control and took back their neighborhood. But when it was taken care, like when it was on the up and up, that's when government entities swung in and were like, oh yes, I forgot we left this this way. Thank you for yes, yes. on it during this. These it's ours now. <laughs> we'll, we'll take over from here, you know, and, and, and you do see those fingerprints all around the city. So. Yeah. Yes, and this was not just happening in the Lower East Side. This was happening in Harlem and the Bronx. And yeah, um, yeah. it's a story of New York. Um, and it's also interesting because this play does have one play that um, has a portion that takes place in the 1930s and 50s. So you also get to see a little bit of that history of, um, it's actually all about the Russian Communist Party and that history that happened in the Lower East Side, um, which then, uh, well, got a little smushed by like McCarthyism and all that. I was just um, to ask, we see the good old red herring McCarthyism coming up. Oh, yes. Yes. There's definitely, we get into the 50s and that, that uh, there's a whole section on that as well. Um, but it's just interesting that the same themes and idealisms of that neighborhood. Um, and of like the communist party and having 
everyone share a building um, is kind of the same things that happen in the 80s for the other play that's going on. There's this one line that is in um, the, it's called Lenin in Love, the first play that's, uh, you know, in a hundred years without radical action, we'll be in the same place that we are now. And it's just something that I'm like, well, it just kind of feels like we're still in that same place, um, even though there has been kind of a lot of radical action and change, but change is something that is a flowing thing that goes back and forth that really is a huge pendulum to move. Um, and I think this sort of thing of how do we change as a gro- group, as a society, that is like, we haven't figured that out yet. And it's something that's very slow and it's something that we are constantly as humans trying to figure out. So I love that that line is there in the 1930s. And then that idea is kind of percolates through the other stories as well. Please listen carefully. So how long have you been working on the show? Um, I think I started in early April. Okay. So it's now end of May. I guess two, little over two months. I literally had that thought. I'm like, early April, what month are we in? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and, and was this the first show you, you've done uh, since the pandemic, since coming back from the pandemic? Um, this was the first, well, De- depending on uh, where you think the pandemic has ended. Um, return of theater. So since Return like the- of theater. Since the My fall, day. yes. Um, I actually, I directed an outdoor show last summer. So we did have an in-person show there and I did a lot of virtual directing. And then in the fall um, and winter, I did a lot of educational theater. So I've directed like two or three shows with children's groups that have gone up. Um, but when it comes to like first professional indoor theater thing since the pandemic, that would be this. <laughs> Amazing. Theater's back. That just feels yes. so good to say. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, what is the message or thought that you're hoping audiences leave with? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Cause I definitely am like, well, you, you get from the piece, whatever you get from it. Um, I don't want to dictate what, what you think. I think for me, one of the things that I kept coming back to is the idea of the East village being kind of like this kaleidoscope of ideas. Um, I looked at a lot of murals when I was talking about set design um, and the thing that I love about murals is that you have one central idea and then a bunch of different things going on that kind of come together to create this big, um, this big vision. Um, and that's, there's also just a lot of murals on the Lower East Side as well. So like, I did a mural walk um, to go and look at what was around and there was this one mural that's actually right outside the theater 
that has, it's a picture of a young black girl holding out her hand and her face has kind of um, a grid like thing going on so that each uh, square has a different coloring in it. Um, It's very similar to, it has a little bit of like Chuck Close inspiration. Um, Who's the visual artist that did all that grid work and then worked within the grid, did a bunch of different pastel-y things to kind of get you the pixel idea of what a portrait is. There's a little bit of that going on. And then in like the corners, there's also these like Keith Haring like stick figures that are showing different ideas. Um, So there's like these three different ideas happening at the same time. And when you are a few blocks back from it, what you see is you just see this beautiful portrait. You actually don't see all the detail, but as you go closer to it, you get to see all these different ideas that are happening to create this one big picture. And that image has stuck with me a lot, especially as I'm looking at these plays. Um, I really like to think of each play as a little pinpoint focus into the world of the East Village. And then we go back out and we get to see the whole mural of what's happening. And then we go back in and we see another section. Um, So that's what I want people to take away. (laughs) Um, I think just the idea of we have all these different perspectives and um, thoughts and creativity and individuality that thrives in this area. But somehow together, it creates this even more beautiful, cohesive mural or art or or piece or something. Um, That's one of the things I love about this neighborhood um, and something that I really looked into when doing this piece. It's amazing. Um, Going along with that, uh, my final question is, who do you um, hope have access to this? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think going back to this is, you know, by the community, for the community, um, I, I think the first audience to me is people who are in the East Village or Lower East Side. Um, this is really, this is a story about about them. Um, and I think... Expanding off of that, though, I think anyone in New York um, is a little bit attached to that area. (laughs) Um, So if you're interested in the history of that area or even just the history of art um, in New York, I think there's a lot of things that came from there that has now moved on to other places. so I, I would hope like at first the community would have access to this, which I know we have a couple of community initiatives happening. I've seen a lot of people from the community there when I've been there. So I'm very, very happy about that. Um, and then just the New York community at large. So as you know, on our podcast, we not only talk about or or break down shows and and really dissect them, but we also talk about our experiences, our own personal experiences with a show or or within the theater. And I would love to now pry a little bit and and talk to you a little bit about your personal experience in the theater. 
Um, and so the first thing I'd like to ask is um, what shows in the past have inspired you or, or that you love um, and, or even what composers or playwrights might fall in that category? Yeah. I'll start with the easy one in that case. <laughs> Great. Love it. Um, I mean, I grew up right next to the city going, um, my parents were huge uh, theater lovers are still huge theater lovers and um, so I was very fortunate I saw my first Broadway show when I was three um, I don't remember much of it it was the music man um, the one thing I've been told that I, I did so I have the memory through it being retold to me is during uh, you got trouble that song um, they did different blocking than they did from the movie that the uh, that I watched and I got really upset and I from the audience started shouting like no you're in the wrong spot you're supposed to be on the statue at this point um so I was like thinking of the blocking of the movie and trying to transfer it to I I thought I was seeing basically the movie recreated as as a three-year-old and was very upset when they changed their blocking which of you know, I didn't know I wanted to be a director at that point, but I was like, "That not that the sign right there? <laughs> like, I'm literally from the audience saying, you're in the wrong spot. You need to get on the statue at this point. And <laughs> anyways, so that's like one of my earliest memories. I grew up with a lot of like musicals. Um, you know, 42nd Street was definitely the first show that I saw and remembered. And that was right after 9-11 um, when the mayor was like, the best thing you can do for New York right now is go see a show. And my parents were like, you don't have to ask us twice. So they took me um, as, as a six-year-old to go see 42nd street and um, act one, you know, ends with Dorothy rock, the star, her ankle uh, gets broken because uh, Peggy Sawyer stepped out of line. Um, And the curtain went down and I went to my parents and I was like, so I guess we have to go home now. Like, I, I guess the show's over. And they were like, no, that that's just act one. We have a whole nother act. Um, Cause you know, that was pretend she didn't actually break her ankle. <laughs> and I was so relieved and so happy because I loved the show. It was like all these bright oh. colors and dances. And I was like, Oh, I was so sad. I wanted to see the rest of the show. And they're like, you can. And I'm, it was great. So I feel like I, I just, when I talk about theater, I feel like I have to go back to those moments of just the childhood spark. Um, because, you know, nowadays, if I saw 42nd Street, I don't think I'd feel that way about it. I feel like I'd be like, well, this musical is really old and problematic. And, and it is. Um, but there is that splashy spark that I think I I feel it's really important to the theater as that sort of um, entertainment and just way of telling a story that is so captivating. Um, and like nowadays I look at, you know, shows like um, I really enjoyed Fun Home or um, Angels in America, the transfer from uh, London, like, that type of stuff that is doing the same craft, but now taking it into a different type of story and uh, pushing that to the new level. 
Um, and I think that it works because of that love and that joy that I think for me, my experience was it came from those flashy musicals. Yes. I, I, we always mention on our show, I think there's two categories of shows, shows that are just meant purely for entertainment and shows that are meant to inspire <clears throat> or challenge or, you know, make you think or something. And, and we need both. Yes. Both are so desperately needed. I mean, I love that you mentioned the music man, the music man currently playing now. I tell people, I'm like, yes, the tickets are expensive, but they're worth every penny. And no, you're not going to leave being like, I have to go create something, but it's the most entertaining thing, in my opinion, on Broadway. Mm. That being said, there's a lot of shows on Broadway and off Broadway that are you're going to go and they're going to challenge your morals and your ideas or make you think. Um, and uh, you need both because theater is a reflection of our our past our culture our history just everything like it's a mirror being held up to society but sometimes we do we just we need to be entertained because we can't always just be both in 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 i I guess our waking and our sleeping lives constantly be thinking and dredging what kind of life is that like you know yeah and i think the best shows do a little bit of both yes um so we do get I mean, I think that's something about Angels in America that um, I absolutely loved with this last production. Like, yeah, that's a heavy story Um, and is definitely something that can be difficult to process, but it's also done in such a gorgeous and captivating way that I keep thinking about like I saw that show, it was pre-pandemic, so I guess like three years ago. And I'm, I still think about that show quite a lot. I, the minute I saw that Mar- Marion Elliott, who's directing yes. Company, yes. Um, the minute I saw Company, I went, I've seen this style before. And I had to yes. look at the table and I went, aha. And because her, it was, it was, we, my wife and I, we saw it all in one day, parts one and two. And I oh, was wow. in a heartbeat. It was, it was amazing. Mm-hmm. It was so well done. Yeah. So, I mean, we could we could gush for hours on Angels. Yes. <laughs> we'll have to have you on the podcast here soon when we talk about Angels in America, and we'll just sit there. It'll be a lovely, like, two-hour-long episode. Sounds great. <laughs> gush. But along with that, has there have you seen any great theater lately that you would recommend to our listeners to see? Yeah, that's great. I was, like, trying to think about this question a lot because – well, part of it is I've been in tech, so I haven't been able to see as much as I normally Outrageous. would do. I know. Because um, normally I try to uh, recommend something that's like off-off-Broadway or indie theater because I feel like you can, when you, when you find something that's good there, it's really good. Um, fact. Yes. But I unfortunately have not seen much off off and indie theater lately because I have been in tech um but I will say what I saw yesterday I saw how I learned to drive um I think is a perfect example of a show that is really difficult to um sit through like because of the content Mm -hmm. but the way that it is done is so beautiful and so powerful um, that I, I do think it has a little bit of both. Like it is, there are some moments that are really entertaining, but there's a lot of moments that are very heavy and, and make you think a lot. Um, so I would recommend that show. Yes. And it just got extended. 
Oh, yes, it did. Yes, and it's, I, I've wanted to see that show ever. When I saw Indecent, and I was so moved by that play. And I was like, who wrote this play? Paula Vogel. I said, okay, I want to go to, what else has she written? And I bought How I Learned to Drive and I read it and like six pages and I was like, what? Oh, I, I'm sorry, what is happening? And who, who is doing that? Oh my God, you know? Yeah. And by the time I finished, I was like, this is a very disturbing, but well-written piece. And I would love to see it done. And yeah. the fact that they're, they've now mounted this production with the original cast at least the original leads, it did not disappoint. It was. Yeah. Well, and the way they used the Greek chorus and a lot yes. of some like structural um, theatrical techniques that we don't use as much now, um, it allows you to detach a little bit from the content so that you can then sit, like watch the content. I found like they do a lot of, um, people are facing away from each other or there's yes. a lot of space, physical space between yes. two actors, but the dialogue, you can still visualize what is happening. It makes it more um, digestible. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, you know, going back to Marion Elliott and her work. Um, I think something that she excels at is endowing a space with meaning. So, you know, curious incident is a grid that is the set um but because of the way that the actors move through the space the sets all of a sudden even though it's a grid becomes someone's home becomes a train station um and i just i love that theater has the ability to do that that you can hold up any object and make it anything yes. um that's so cool <laughs> to me i'm like oh that's that's great we have the power to create anything on stage well so then building off of that idea what is your favorite part about working in the theater i think i love the collaboration of uh all these artists coming together which maybe makes sense then why i love something like east village uh stories actually where i'm talking about like murals and all these ideas coming together to create one thing because that's what I think the theater is um and I always see you know I always have this struggle when people come up to me and they're like oh you're a director like what is your vision and I'm like I I don't really believe in the director's vision and the like this is how I see the story because I see the director as the middle piece for all these other artists ideas coming together and I'm just filtering through all of these different ideas to try and focus um, everyone's idea into one area, one direction. Um, but I really see it as I'm like looking at all these playwrights and I'm talking with them about what their stories are and trying to put them together. And then I talk with actors and I get all of their ideas and all their lived experiences. And I try to put that together into this piece. And then I talk to designers and, um, I love hearing all these different people's perspectives on this work and then getting to put it together like a puzzle so that an audience can then see this version of this story. And then they'll have their whole other perspectives that go into it. Um, so I love the fact that like theater can, um, is something that is created by a bunch of people. It's not like 
a novel where you can just sit and write it by yourself. Um, it's something that you are working with people to create. And then it's something that people digest and have very uh, expressive discussions and arguments about it um, because it hits at something that is emotional and is real. I love that answer. I absolutely love it. And I think that also hits to the point why we, why being without theater for so long because of the pandemic hurts so much. We miss Mm -hmm. that collaboration. We miss that community. We miss that connection. And, you know, as we sit here and talk via Zoom, like this is great and all, but it doesn't, it doesn't compare to the in-person ability. There's something about being in person and, and sharing that, that in the same room, that same, I don't know, invisible thought that you get. You get an audience member to cast too, you know. There's, there's some strange connection that you, can, you have that you yeah. don't get in, 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 a, in a screen. The screen really acts as a physical fourth wall. It does. You know? <laughs> so, well, and there's something, like I was talking about this yesterday, of you know, you're sitting in a theater and everyone does a collective sigh or does like mm-hmm. a collective sound of disgust or even a laugh or just just something that the whole room experiences together and feels together. Um, that I think I missed that the most of yes. having that collect. How do we collectively feel in this audience? Um, Cause on zoom theater, you never, you never got that. Um, yeah. I remember stage managing a zoom piece once at my parents' house. Cause I was just over there and um i didn't know the play was funny until i heard them they were watching it uh, on a 30 second delay um so i was hearing them like laugh and cheer in their living room just the two of them um while i was like running it in the other room and i was like oh yeah like that's the fun part of theater is that you're sharing a story with people and you get to hear their responses mm-hmm. I, yeah but it's back it's back and Yes. Stay. Um, my uh, one of my final questions for you. Uh, what is you, uh, your favorite theater memory? Who favorite theater memory? Um, I mean, I think the first one of going to see Forty Second Street uh, and thinking that the star actually broke her ankle, um, and then finding out that she didn't is, is up there. Um, <laughs> that, that was. That that was a, a great a great day for me, um, and uh, let me think of I, you know, I think this is going back to that community idea. Um, I saw Hairspray when I was, let's say, eleven or twelve, and after the show, I did the whole stage door thing. I had my my stage door phase, um, and I remember. Uh, getting the autograph of the actor who played Edna. Um, and I, I don't remember his name. Um, was it Harvey Firestein? No, it wasn't. It oh, okay. was, that would have been amazing. Um, but no, this was like many iterations past the original oh, cast. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, because then he started walking the same direction as I did. And I was there with um, my godfather who took me to a lot of theater. He was like, my um my theater guardian as <laughs> growing up he'd always take me and we were just ha- all happened to be walking in the same direction and we were talking about the show and uh this actor was getting a huge kick out of 
I think talking to an 11 year old who was so into theater, which now as an adult, I totally like, I get that. But as a kid, I was like, oh my God, like he's an actor on stage. And like, he's just a regular guy too. And we were like, just talking about the show and this like connection of what it's like to work in the theater. And I, I got to like learn a lot from him and just to also see his appreciation for the audience um, made me feel really special about going and getting to see this special moment and then getting to hear from the person who helped create this special moment. Um, so that's, that's another great memory from the theater. I adore that. Oh, good actor out there. Whoever this actor is. Yeah. I got to look up his name. It's probably in, I have to look through my playbill collection. It's definitely. Pull out the playbill <laughs> Yes. <laughs> So are there any other productions that you have coming on the pipeline that you're working on that we could? Yeah, I actually, I start rehearsal today for um, a production called A Shot Rang Out by Michael Hagens, which is going up in June at Theater Row. Um, yeah, that's uh, a one day, one day showing, but I'm, I'm really excited to dive into that piece and um get get back into the rehearsal room i feel very lucky i'm going from one project to the next normally have a little little break in between but you're directing yeah i'm directing that so um your show the one one show show the shot rang out at the part of the downtown urban arts festival yes yes that's correct at theater row so you you've got the two projects running kind of side by side which is a good time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I mean, hey, you got to be working, right? It's good time. Yeah, I I feel very lucky. Um, I've been been booking it. (laughs) So that I'm I'm very excited about. And, you know, it's just great to have the chance to create so much art. Um, I'm tired, but I'm very happy. So (laughs) for all the right reasons, though. Yes, yes. Which is always a good thing. Um, if our listeners uh, want to get more information about uh, your show, East Side Stories, actually, or they want to reach out to you, how can they do that? So the best way to get more information on East Side Stories, actually, is to go to metropolitanplayhouse.org. Um, and it's right on their front page. Um, and then to reach me, uh, you can go to my website, rachellangston.com. Um, and there's my email and uh, Instagram are all great ways to get in contact with me. Amazing. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today here on Whisper in the Wings. It's been an absolute joy speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been so wonderful. My guest today has been Rachel Langton, who is the director of East Side Stories, actually, which is playing at the Metropolitan Playhouse. Uh, It closes on May 29th, Sunday, May 29th. So hurry and get your tickets. Um, They've got shows Thursday through Sunday. You can get your tickets and more information by going to metropolitanplayhouse.org. You can also get more information or reach out to our guest by visiting her website, rachellangton.com. And all of these details we posted uh, on information about this episode, as well as on our social media. And we'll be sure to get the word out about your next show, uh, Shot Rang Out, premiering at Theater Row. So, uh, Rachel, again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, 
Unwrap your candies and keep your masks on and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar, John Bartman, and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you'll find all the information about our backstage pass. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. <laughs>